Good morning. So great to see all of you. Once we get out of a rhythm, throws everything off, and it was hard to not see our church together last week because of snow and all the other things that happen as a result of living in Maine. So it's just great to see you all here. And um, I just wanted to say, let me just scan really quick to know if I'm saying something in person or on the camera. Uh, I just wanted to kind of quickly say that um, we're we're happy for our brother, uh, Dan Brochu, who came through a successful surgery this week and just want to um, praise the Lord with him and with Sue and with Sadie, who are such a faithful family and been going through such uh, difficult turmoil um, health-wise and stuff for, for quite a number of years. And uh, to, to have prayers answered and to see their endurance just keep on going and their faithfulness abound is such a praise and testimony to the Lord. And so, uh, and there's so many others we could mention, but for a particular reason, Dan's been on my heart this week and, and uh, just uh, so thankful for the fact that he holds on. So stay strong there, brother, and keep on uh, keeping on because the Lord is in it and he is shining through you. Um, this morning, I, I just, every once in a while, I'm sensitive to the fact that we may have folks here that aren't familiar with our routine or what we do here, and, and not that every week is exactly the same, but for the most part, our quote-unquote formula at faith is fairly predictable. We are a church that, above all things, um, believes that the Word of God is the most important uh, aspect of our worship service, our time together on a Sunday morning. And uh, it's it's also the most important unifier in our fellowship together. We have small groups that meet throughout the week and different classes and things like that. The Word of God is really the essential element. It is the truth that we live by and we adhere to. So we wrestle with its teaching. We strive to explain it as best as humanly possible under the guidance and the the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And so um, we do that at, at faith. We do that kind of in sequence where we take a book of the Bible, one of the individual sections of the scriptures and work our way through it from front to back. And so we've been now for about a year's worth of messages, believe it or not. Um, we've been going through the gospel of John, which is in the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John written by um, the, from the perspective, if you will, of the apostles of Jesus, those that followed him the closest. And uh, each gospel, though three of them are written from a very similar perspective, but each gospel carries different um, aspects a little bit or emphasizes different viewpoints. It doesn't contradict the other. It enhances the whole message of the life of Jesus and the words that he taught. And so coming to the book of John, the gospel of John, we've been walking it through now. We're in uh, 15 and 16, those chapters. Uh, we've come all this way. It's taken us a while to get there, and we still have a lot longer to go. And we find ourselves in the midst of what has been referred to as Jesus' final discourse, his final teaching that started with his closest friends, these apostles, these followers, these intimate followers of him in what we refer to as the upper room on the night before his arrest, the night before his betrayal. And it's important for us to kind of set the context before we get into Jesus' words this morning, because from the time of Jesus, right up until today, there has been a steady drumbeat of persecution or a hostility or a resistance against the movement of Christ. 
And, and, and for the first 15 chapters, we've seen elements of that. We've seen it specifically from those that should have known better, the religious leaders, the ones that were so intimately acquainted with the law of God, and yet they missed the person of Jesus. They missed who the true Messiah would be, even though the prophets had, uh, had, had said who it would be in a sense of what to look for and when. And they missed it, and they saw Jesus more as a as a threat to their position and their prominence more than the welcomed rescue that the Father had been promising them for centuries. They wanted a freedom from the oppression of government. They wanted to be established as a nation so where they could live in relative prosperity and freedom and go here and there and everything. They just wanted to be their own people. And until that Messiah would come and lead that charge, mostly in the political atmosphere, and overtake Rome, unless he came that way, they didn't want anything to do with him. And Jesus came to uh, get a different victory, a victory of the heart to defeat a different enemy, the enemy of hell. Roman persecution was was heating up as uh, Christianity couldn't be contained by the Jews. The Romans were occupying the land and they saw Christianity, whatever it was becoming, was really a Judaism problem, was really a Jewish problem. You guys contain it. You keep it under wraps. It's no threat to us. It's no big deal to us. It took a while for the Romans to start to see, okay, Christianity is its own thing. Even the Jews can't contain it because the message of the cross was that, uh, that we aren't to give ourselves to the traditions of men for salvation. We're to find forgiveness in the sacrifice of the Messiah. And so there was this growing awareness that if we don't do anything about these Christians, they're going to cause greater problems for us. The Jews couldn't contain them. They had a problem with them. And now it's starting to become our problem. I won't get into the various figures during the, the church history time, but some very key um, Roman emperors during these phases of persecution had different reasons and different approaches to this coming down on the Christian faith. They started to blame them for everything that was going wrong in their own societies. If, if they saw that their gods weren't blessing them, well, who's to blame for that? It's the Christians that are pulling people away from the Roman gods. They're saying, hey, we don't worship trinkets. We don't worship these statues. We worship the one true living God. And as more and more people, particularly those that were either poor or in slavery, were finding a message of hope and redemption in the cross of Jesus, they were starting to move away from these Roman institutions, move away from these Roman gods. And so something as silly as we're not selling enough idols. Our income's down. It's the Christian's fault. We're starting to feel pressure or revolt against some of our demands and our commands to worship Caesar and all these things. And they're saying, no, we only worship the one true God. We don't bow to anybody else. Christianity is starting to become a problem for the Roman government. And so throughout the decades, throughout the centuries, oppression is starting to tighten. And, uh, and, the, and the screws are starting to tighten on the Christian church. Of course, we've seen this throughout history between communism and Islamic attack on anything with the label Christian, that there's a movement, a steady drumbeat against the advance of the church of Jesus Christ. On a low estimate, 70 million people have been martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. I say low because that stat is super old. And even at the time that it was given was considered a gross underestimate. 
It has been said that since 1990, an average of 100,000 people have died for their faith in Christ. Since 1990, 100,000 per year. You see, when we stop and take a uh, just a, a review of what has gone on in the past of the church, just to bring us to the point that we're at, it starts to sober us a little bit. It starts to cause us to to value our freedom to come and be a part of a service like this, where we pray openly. We're in a building that's for everybody around to see our car, our parking lots. We don't have to park behind the building so people don't know that we're meeting here today. There's we have some threats that come to the church, especially in America, but but they're not as as it has been in history and when we see what people have survived through or even what they've laid their lives down for we start to appreciate all that's been given to us it starts to combat an attitude of complacency and it spurs us on to endure these hardships and these difficulties that we still do experience today because others have paid the price and laid down a great legacy for us we want to be able to do the same The text that we're studying today that begins in John chapter 15 calls us to expect two specific guarantees within the life of faith. And I'm going to keep it very simple because there's a lot that we could be talking about in this text. And there's a lot that needs to be talked about, but we don't have the time for all of it. So let me try to boil it down to the two key or essential points of this text. The first is we can expect as a guarantee within this life of faith that we will receive hatred from this world. Now, I've got to be careful how we explain this because the the modern, maybe not modern, like it's just exclusive to today, but the very common tactic for everybody is to set up an enemy on the other side of what you believe so that you're always in this military kind of environment where you're always feeling like there's somebody to conquer, there's somebody to kill, there's somebody to take down. And we could be just as guilty, and I think in some aspects of Christianity, we certainly have been guilty of seeing everybody as an enemy and we sort of relish the fact we get to go to war we get to take somebody down there's something within us that wants to have to defeat an enemy so we have to be careful even though we see the words from jesus that we can expect hatred from this world he says but you will also receive here's a second promise comfort from the lord in the face of recent testing the voice of the American church has not been that consistent. We can have churches within miles of each other or within less than a mile of each other say very different things about rising opposition or against the difficulties that we face being Christians in this century. Some have resulted, uh, uh, resorted to um, actual, uh, like, like absolute venom and vehemence and shouting down the enemy and treating everybody like they're um, the worst thing to ever walk on the earth. And then others uh, tuck their heads in the sand and act like there is no problem and can't say two words about what seems so obvious to the rest of us. Current persecution, though we're not all facing the stake to be burned at or we're not all facing the guillotine right now, current persecution is felt in blatant hostility to the things of Christ And what has happened is this cultural shift that sees the church as morally inferior to the rest of culture. It used to be when I was a child and and before me and everything, it used to be that most people would say, I don't really live up to the standards or the moral code of those that those church going goody two shoes. 
that I'm not really quite there. They look down on us and everything. Now a, a shift is, and I'm not saying that's a good view to have, but, but there's a shift that's happened now where the church is now the one who's not holding up the moral ethic code. We're not good enough for what society has deemed to be right or wrong. In fact, we're enforcing our values or we're imposing our values on them. So how does a follower of Christ prepare themselves for what is only promised to get worse? Do we just get angrier and fight fire with fire? Or do we just keep turning the other cheek and sacrifice of all that has been entrusted to us? The scriptures help us with this. We're not without direction. We're not without hope. But before we can know exactly what we're going to do, we need to set our expectations based on the promises of Jesus in John 15. And 16. So I told you what the first guarantee would be, what the first promise is, is that Christians should expect hatred from the world. And, and Jesus not leaving us without answers, because you can imagine these disciples hearing this. This isn't the first time they've heard this. He's been kind of leaking this warning throughout his, his journey with these apostles and with these followers of his. But can, you can imagine every time they say they're like, give me some detail. How bad is it going to get? Or, or Why? You know, if I'm in that group, if I'm in that enclave and Jesus says, this whole thing, this journey that we're on is going to face a lot of resistance and you're going to feel a lot of heat. My first response in my flesh would be, well, isn't there a better way we can go about this that maybe keeps both sides happy? Do we, do we have to go right into the belly of the beast? Do we have to pick a fight in that sense? So Jesus says, well, there's reasons why we should expect hatred from the world. And the first is because of our proximity to him. So our text says in John 15, in verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 20. We'll come back to verse 19 in a second. Remember the word that I, that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. This takes us back to last week where I dragged people out in a blizzard just to say we should be slaves of Christ. Very encouraging. Way to come out in the snowstorm for that, right? He says, but a servant, a, 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 a slave, doulos, we said that word was, is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You can hear the shepherding in Jesus' words even, like in verse 18, where he says, if the world hates you, know that it was because of me. In other words, Christian, you did not do anything wrong to deserve what's coming your way. They, they really hate, I'm the ultimate enemy. They hate me. You're, you're in proximity to me. You're following one step behind. You're close to me. So you're going to feel the same resistance. He said, this is the way it is when the world hates you. That world is not, of course, the creation we see out there with the trees and the lakes and the mountains. World that he's referring to, this word cosmos is a, is an order. It's a system, it's a, it's a designed kind of um, packaged environment. And in particular, this order is one in active rebellion to God. Cosmos is where we get the word cosmetic. It sets things straight that is otherwise out of order. And so what's going on in this system is there's a heartbeat, there's a movement in a direction, and that direction is in the opposite of where God is, where his will is. So everything in the world system is moving away from who the Lord is, 
what he wills, what he desires, what pleases him, what he's uh, initiated in his creation. This system moves away. And he says this, this order, this, this cosmos that's moving away, hated me first. It didn't start with you. And if they treated me, Jesus is saying, the one who is the creator of it all, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, if they would treat the master this way, why would you expect that your treatment would be any less severe? We could say it this way. The closer that you and I walk to Jesus, the greater the chance of us getting hit by enemy fire. So that gives us a decision, an evaluation. What will happen, I keep saying the phrase, in our flesh, that means apart from the Spirit of God doing work in us to build up something within us, what will happen in our flesh is say, well, why would I want to be that close to him then if it's dangerous? The question then becomes for us, are we keeping Jesus at a safe distance because we're afraid of the consequences of being aligned with him? We can ask the apostle Peter, how did that turn out? Because in mere moments, he's about to keep a safer distance from Jesus. Even though he was walking behind him as he was arrested and marched, was being marched into his, his arrest and crucifixion, Peter decided, eh, the heat's getting a little too much. I'm going to walk away. And so he moves away at a safer distance to not catch as much fire as Jesus is getting. They try to accuse him. You sound like him. We saw you with him. All that. He's like, nope, wasn't me. Wasn't me. He keeps trying to bridge uh, or get the distance, gap the distance even more. So he's not aligned with them. So he doesn't catch the same fire. It ultimately torments Peter and crushes his spirit because he knows he loves the Lord above all. And that he's just let down his master and his friend. So we see in Peter's life and in his actions, a warning that says, just because if you're trying to keep more distance from Jesus in order to feel safer in life, it's probably not going to work out too well for your soul. There is greater danger living life on your own apart from the tether of God's shepherding care. Most of you know that I'm obsessed with the Lord of the Rings and I Picture a little hobbit's voice when I think of these terms because as Treebeard, the giant creature that's walking two little hobbits and trying to keep them safe and he's holding them in his mitts here and everything and that he's saying, I'm going to take you away from the battle. One of them, it dawns on them. If we're going to do anything about this problem, we got to get back in the action. And so Pippin says, the closer we are to danger, the further we are from harm. Treebeard responds, That doesn't make any sense to me, but you're very small. Perhaps you're right. This is how Hughes says it in his commentary on John. Most people try to find a comfortable spot between the extremes of a godly life and a sinful one. And they achieve this at the cost of their lives. They prefer a smooth sea to being possessed by God. They go through life with little difficulty because they've accommodated themselves to the world. Part of the reason for the hatred that we experience from those who are outside the life of Jesus is because we're walking close to him. And that's a worthy endeavor. It's worthy of catching a fire of being that close from our enemies. The second thing that Jesus points out is it's because we've been purchased by him. This will be reminiscent to our message last week, so we won't go into it all. But verse 19 says, if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, 
Therefore, the, Lord, the world hates you. Jesus said, I came to the slave market of which we had just sung about. I was a slave to sin. We were in that pit or that pen of our own sin. And Jesus says, I'm going to purchase you out of that. I'm going to purchase you unto myself. And as he pulls us out of that pit, there are others going, oh, I bet he thinks he's better than us now, doesn't he? They start to hate the fact that we were pulled out of and we're on a different course. And a lot of you can attest to this. A lot of you have seen the Lord make a change in your life that doesn't register the people that said they care about you. And instead of supporting all of the changes and saying, it's about time, we're so glad, even if they don't get it, they should be encouraging it, saying, but it's clearly it's working out for you. But what do they say instead so often? Not everybody. I'm generalizing. But this has been the experience of so many. You think you're better than us now? Used to be back with us in the hood. You used to do the things that we did. And just because you've cleaned up and you've met Jesus, what do you think you're better than us now? It happens. There's an angst against those who have been purchased by the Lord. And of course the answer is, no, I'm not better than you. He forgave me. He, he's the one that cleaned me up. He's the one that changed me. It's all him. I didn't do this. I'm not smart enough for this. But he says, if you're of that world's system, they would claim you as their own. And they'd be okay with whatever you wanted to do because, hey, you're one of us. You see, the, the system of the world is bent towards conformity. No matter how much you hear people screaming about individual choice and let me just be and all this kind of stuff, it all ends up looking like everybody else. I, I saw this so much as, a, uh, as a, an 80s rock kid. Paid attention to who the bands were and who was doing what. Now I was a, growing up in a Christian home, so I had to sneak it all. But um, that's not a lesson to you kids. I feel very, very bad about it. But what I noticed was especially in the 80s, you know, in the rise of Billy Idol and the spikes on the leather bracelets and the, the, the we called it guy liner, you know, the guys that wore the, uh, the eyeliner around there and then they'd have the hair spiked and everything like that. So the punk movement was becoming mainstream and the punk movement said, we dress like this because we don't want to look like everybody else. And as they're saying it to the camera, there's about 500 of them behind them that look just like them. This is what we do. We, we move in pools of conformity. We do what everyone else is doing. And yet we scream disingenuously. We scream, I can't surrender to Christ because I need my freedom. I need to do me. But it's not what we end up settling for. We, we end up moving in step with conformity. We do what everybody does. It doesn't fit the Christian life. It stands out like a sore thumb because Romans 12.2 says that we're not to be conformed to this world, but instead we're transformed by the renewal of our minds that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We don't conform to what the changing or the moving target of society is. This is what is moral or this is what is good and acceptable. We say, I'm all the Lord's. He established this pattern for centuries before I was even around. And I'm adhering to his word and his truth and his spirit is alive in me and moving me in that direction. I conform myself to him. So Jesus said, I chose you. I purchased you out of the slavery of sin. I purchased you out so that you would become more like me, that we wouldn't conform to all of this moving target. We would conform to him. Jesus also tells us in verse 21, it's because of their personal ignorance about him that we experience the hatred of the world. This is what the verse says. 
But all of these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they did not know him who sent me. Now, Jesus has been hitting this point over and over and over again, especially to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the ones that were were guarding their religion and defending it against this sort of upstart Messiah, so they thought Jesus was. He's been saying, you claim to be doing this by the will of the Father, but you don't even know him. If you knew the Father, you'd recognize me, is the point he's making. If you knew the father, what did he say to us last week? I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends. Why? Because you know the plans of my father. Everything he told me, I shared with you. I brought you to the inner circle. So now you're aware of the game plan. That makes you a friend of the Lord. I know how he thinks. I know how he moves. I know where he's going because he's let me in by his good graces. But they didn't know. They didn't even recognize the plan of salvation had shown up right before him. And so he says, the reason why they hate you is because they really don't know the father like they claim. Knowing him means knowing about him, not just knowing how a system works or not just being able to show off that we've memorized these things or back in that day that we had the right things hanging off our sleeves or we were garbed in the right robes or anything along those lines. It's that we were intimate with the spirit of God, with his will, with his plans. If we were to jump ahead into John 16, we pick up in verse 2 where it says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. Now, I'm not saying that this is a direct prophecy to the, the rising, if you will, of Saul of Tarsus. But right around the corner was a zealous... Um, persecutor coming to chase down after Jesus resurrection to chase down those that were seeking to build the church that were seeking to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and his name was Saul of Tarsus and he was coming more eagerly than anybody else and he was great at his job he was eliminating Christians left and right until Jesus stops him on the road to Emmaus and says it is hard for you to keep resisting me it is hard for you to keep pushing against me. You need to just surrender because I'm here for you too. I am forgiving your sins as well. And Saul of Tarsus became Paul, the great apostle who has finished so much of the New Testament for us and is so responsible for the spread of the gospel in that region and around the world. Jesus says there's an hour coming when those people who claim to know God and to love him will get rid of you just because they're doing it for their religious duty. It couldn't be any more perfectly illustrated than from Saul of Tarsus. But it continues from him and it takes on newer and stranger variations as time goes on. This is what we need to see as we're thinking about what it really means to know the Lord is that we are not truly in Christ until we get to the point of believing in the person of Jesus Christ as God's own son. If you're not sure what you're, what we do here at faith or you're not sure even why you're here this morning, our greatest hope is to introduce you to somebody. That's our job. We've come to worship God. We've come to respond to all that he's done in our life and the salvation that he's given us. But we do it so that we can introduce you to the person of Jesus Christ. This isn't to introduce you to a system or a religion or a list of duties, but instead for you to meet the Lord that has rescued us. 
This is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the only thing separating us from being the enemy of God, like these Pharisees and other persecutors, is the belief and the follow-through that he deserves my life, and therefore I respond by giving it to him. Lastly, from the text, though there's probably plenty of other reasons, but in the warning of Jesus, the reason why we can expect hatred from the world is because of the prosecution of sin by Jesus. Not persecution, but prosecution of sin by Jesus. In other words, he came to expose sin. He tells us this in verse 22. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. Doesn't mean that they weren't in general guilty of sin. What he's saying is they wouldn't have been guilty of the sin of rejecting me if I hadn't come and presented myself to them. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen and hated both me and my father. Once you see what Jesus exposes, you're, you're, you've got a decision to make. Am I going to do something with it or am I going to ignore it? Back to um, Hughes in his commentary, he tells the story of an, an African chief who was visiting a mission state, uh, station and she saw this piece of glass hanging on a tree. Now, this chief, as so many did in that culture, she got all kind of war painted up. It was a particular look uh, most likely to go as you're going to meet somebody new and you make an impression. And this one was particularly intimidating and, and fearful and things. And so, but she hadn't seen what it looked like. And she was pointing out this tree and she was intrigued by this glass that was hanging there. And she walked by, she saw her own face, not knowing it was her own face, and was startled and, and freaked out. And she said, I don't like that face in that tree. What's going on with that? And he says, oh, you misunderstand. That's not, that's not a portal to something. That's just a reflection of how you look. You saw yourself in that. She said, I need to buy that glass from you. He says, oh, I'm not really interested in selling it. So she convinced him and she was, he was seeing that she was really struggling with the concept. So he eventually sold it to her. And we would think that she bought it because it's really fascinating. She gets to see herself. She's going to make these changes or whatever she's going to do. But as soon as she had it in her possession and paid for it, she broke it on the ground because she didn't ever want to see that face again. It was a denial that that's how she looked. It was a it was a, a desire to not ever have to own up to the fact that even though it scared me, I don't care if it's scaring other people. This is what we do. We 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 are revealed. Our sin is revealed by the presence of Jesus, and we're like, "What's that horrible face in the tree?" And He says, "That's that's what your soul looks like. That's what I came to rescue you from." And we so often are tempted to just go, "I'm not interested. I don't ever want to see that again. It's too painful. It's too scary. It's jolting." I, I want to say a caveat about this because, as I said in the outset, we have to be careful about how we just march to war when it comes to expecting persecution as a church and where we go with this and everything. And I believe that one of the great mistakes and sins of the church in this particular era is that we have overplayed our hand with this battle mentality and we treat everybody as somebody that needs to be, you know, taken out. I, I want to just say that the Bible is clear about our conduct. It is our lifestyle of joy and patience that will cause others to envy and even to curse us. It, the mirror that we're allowing to hang on our tree, if we're faithful to that illustration, is the one of the truth of who Jesus is. 
not in my ability to condemn in other people. You shouldn't do that. You're a wicked sinner and all that kind of stuff. I can call out sin. I can preach the truth. But it's the attitude of my delivery system. It's my my high horse positioning that so often turns the world away from the reflection of the mirror because we just hold it out in such such heavy truth and we say, this is what you look like. You need to see this more. I don't look like that. We shouldn't go out of our way, as many Christians do, to antagonize sinners or think every form of opposition is because we are Christians. Sometimes the world just doesn't want to be around jerks. And we can be that way sometimes. Do I believe that sin is real? Yes. Do I believe that we have a responsibility to uphold truth before sin so that people can be uh, given the opportunity to repent from it? Absolutely. Do I like asking myself questions? Yes, I do. I just caught myself doing that. But it's, it's the tone, it's the presentation, it's the position that I've put myself in that because I no longer look like that when I look in the mirror, I can berate you for looking like it. Jesus says, once I'm in, the, in their presence, once I've performed what I've performed, once I've said what I've said, they have no excuse for their sin. They've seen their, themselves. We saw this when Jesus hand, uh, healed the blind man back in chapter 9. It was really obvious. They kept trying to investigate to find some missing key. There's no way that he just did what he did. And you, you, you can see now there's something in the story that we're missing. It was obvious before them, but they couldn't surrender their hearts to the truth that he has done something miraculous because of all that that would mean. Second Peter three says that they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water. And through water by the word of God. There is a deliberate repulsion. There's a deliberate denial to what is so obvious when Jesus is at work. And also as a caveat, or maybe not a caveat, but just a side point here, but an important one. As we're evaluating all these reasons for the hatred that would be shown to us, and we're thinking about the various ways that we've received it, and we're wondering and worried sometimes about the ways that we might receive it in the future, please understand this. The reason why Jesus shares this is a message of hope. He shares this to say there's good reasons why this is happening because truth is shining, because sin is being exposed, because hearts are being transformed, and the devil hates that. There will be an opposition to it. And the reality for us is that we have to see that persecution was the vehicle that brought Jesus to the cross to die for our sins. That if if the world was just ambivalent to the arrival of the Savior, they wouldn't have been innocent because they were born in their sin. But if they were just ambivalent, just say, hey, you know, everybody just do their thing. And they didn't really care that he was on the scene. They wouldn't have led him towards the crucifixion, which was the whole plan of God, which rescued you and me because it laid down a perfect sacrifice for us. All right, that was point number one. I realized with my wife earlier that my watch battery is dying, so I still have plenty of time this morning, so good luck with that. Let me try to do this as quickly as possible without flying through it. We should expect to be comforted by the Lord. We go to verses 26 and 27. But when the helper comes, don't you love that word for the Holy Spirit? The comforter, the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. That's the role of the Holy Spirit as he shines light on everything about Jesus. 
that we need to experience and know. And you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Verse 1 of chapter 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus is saying all of this. He's exposing all of this warning to prepare them to be comforted. Not just to freak them out and have them shaking in their sandals, but instead to prepare them for, um, if, if Jesus knew this was coming, once it starts hitting, then he must have had a plan to get us through it. If he's caught off guard, then none of us know what the plan is going to be. There is a demonstrated value of our faith whenever we see those enduring persecution. When we see all of this starting to wash up on our shore and we're, we're experiencing that resistance, we start to wake up to the value of our faith as we see it standing against the opposition of the enemy. And sometimes we scratch our head and we go, why, why are people upset with Christianity anyway? You can ask people, why don't you like Christians? And they'll come up with a few experiences of maybe somebody who was the Christian jerk or a church that misled them or abused them. And there's all of these legitimate pockets of things that people have not been who they claim to be. And that has caused this black mark, if you will, on the name of Christianity. But if you look at the sweep of Christianity, if you look at its true tenets, what the Bible teaches, and you say, what problem do you have with Christianity? Was it that we made too many hospitals, that we built too many orphanages, too many shelters? What What's really the beef with the outcome of us adhering to the gospel? There aren't many good answers, and certainly none of them satisfying. I'm going to make a point here that I really wrestled with how to say this. I've been thinking about this for years, and so that means I've overthought it, which means my statement isn't going to make sense. Let me explain in a 30-second attempt here. As it comes to how Christianity stands out amongst the others, or what we think of other religions, I think every religion should be judged by its fundamental tenets, not solely on the execution of those tenets. Let me say it. Just one other way. I can go out and be a poor representative of the, of the truth of what I claim to believe. And that doesn't knock down the truth. It just means I'm a terrible representative of it. If you walk Christianity back to its fundamentals, we hear this name, well, he's a fundamentalist and stuff. If you walk Christianity back to its fundamentals, what you see is a carrying out of mercy and grace and forgiveness and help and assistance. You see all those things. Why? Because that's what my Savior did for me. Well, you've forgotten about the Crusades. It's like, you know, there's always this, there's a poor execution to the fundamental tenets of our faith. In any religion that you want to evaluate, whether it's doing good or not, we've had a lot of them that in the fundamental tenets of their faith are nothing but outright wickedness and, and persecution of anybody that says, I don't agree with you. Well, fine, we'll wipe you out. It's softened over the years. Not everyone's adhering to the tenets of those religions. And so we start to label them as beautiful and peaceful. But if they were adhering to their original tenets, it would be anything but. You see the difference there. There's an inexplicable persecution that reminds us that maybe there is something to this faith that we live. What complaint do they really have against it? 
Another reason why we would experience comfort from the Lord is the deepening of our relationship with God. This point is made so often as we walk through the scriptures that I won't elaborate on it too much. First Peter 4 says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When do we feel the presence of God most acutely is when we're suffering, when we're going through the stretch of, 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 of um, vulnerability. And he's close to us and he's with us. So it deepens our relationship with God to experience the hatred and the persecution of the world. That's why he says when the helper comes, we learn to cling to God in utter utter dependence for our lives. And lastly, and this is a point that we want to make throughout the year together at Faith, this has just come to our leadership in particular um, precision, is this developing unity within the family of God that persecution will bring us together as a body of Christ. We will share in one another's sufferings. Peter says, uh, resist him, that's the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I don't need to know everybody's names around the world. I don't need to know them personally. But as people are suffering in China, as they're trying to uh, worship God freely and the government is maneuvering to oppress, and I, I, I start praying for the propulsion, if you will, of the church of Jesus Christ in those communist countries and in places where the, the freedom of the gospel is being suppressed. I have a kinship with them. I don't need to know them by name to share their plight and to, to be concerned for their outcome. I'll have a shared comfort with them. Revelations 2 says, don't fear uh, what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. This is just one of many passages I could have used that tells us that there is a time of comfort awaiting us as we endure these difficulties. And then Jesus says that we're going to have the same destination waiting for us in Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. On my account. Not because we went out of our way to be offensive, but because we were carrying the name of Jesus and living his life before them. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All of these things bring us together. We we bond together under times of persecution and testing. I stop caring about what your favorite color is. I stop worrying about whether or not you live 10 miles further than I want to travel to see you. All these other things that get in the way of our unity. Instead, I start to see you as a fellow sufferer for the cause of Christ. And I look to support you. I look to go with you, uh, go through it with you. I look to share the experience of this test together and all the superficial stuff starts washing away. So what are we saying? Jesus is telling us that we need to reset our expectations. Don't get stuck asking the world system that is proven to have marched away from the plans of God. Don't ask the world system to approve your faith in Christ. It won't. You ever notice how excited we get when a celebrity comes to Christ and we hope they use their platform to say how, how changed they are and everything. I'm not against celebrities coming to Christ and using that platform, but it it's becomes like this badge of honor. Now we're cool. Now Christianity counts because Justin Bieber says he goes to church. Wow. Nothing against the Biebs. Mostly. 
Begin to anticipate that as reward for your suffering, God will bring you the greatest measure of peace within, despite the ugliness of your circumstances. And then we learn to live with the eternal expectancy that our true life goes way beyond the present circumstances of this world. Whatever it is you're walking through, and I know a lot of you are walking through things personally and individually that you don't share in the open air and you see this as a direct result of you holding firm to your faith. I know you're getting beat up by this, but understand this tiny little window of life that we live in suffering and in hardship, the scripture says is nothing to be compared to the glory glory that awaits us. This is the promise that we cling to. This is the reason why we can encourage one another. And we, those that are not going through those things presently, need to remain mindful of that and hold those people up as they're looking for strength and they're looking for endurance. We build this thing together because we suffer the same uh, opposition from the same enemies. We've been given the reasons why Jesus made it clear to us, but we've been given the hope that he will produce in us the comfort that only he can provide. Let's pray together. If you would, please, let's stand and prepare to sing ourselves out. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for what you do in your word. I thank you, Father, for the truth that you reveal to us. And Lord, um, our times are very confused right now with how we should respond, how we should, we should even define persecution is sort of up in the air. And so, Lord, we are mere human beings who do not see the end of all things. And there are times where we wrestle with our responsibility to fight, to not just roll over and die. There are times where we fight with our desire to want to turn the other cheek and humbly walk through our um, persecution and accept it. So, Lord, there are times in different uh, stages and seasons of all of these things that we need to use your wisdom to know our best response. So help us at least, Lord, to settle on the fact that we will experience persecution if we live godly in Christ Jesus, that it awaits us. Help us, Lord, to trust that you will comfort us through it and especially on the other side of it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.